Let us worship God. from the book of Exodus, the first chapter, beginning with the eighth verse. In preparation to hear these words, let us pray. Holy One, we give you thanks for these ancient words and for the lives of those who have carried them down throughout the ages. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds this morning, that your fresh word might fall upon us this day. Amen. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us. 
and, and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said, that, said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but they let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, God gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. My soul cries out with a joyful shout that the God of my heart is great. And my spirit sings of the wondrous things that you bring to the ones who wait. You fixed your sight on your servant's plight, and my weakness you did not spurn. So from east to west shall my small, my God, my all, you work great things. 
continuing on in Exodus. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Here ends our reading. There is a very iconic photograph in American history taken on May 10th, 1869 at Promontory Summit in Utah. It's the photo maybe you remembered from your history books of a large group of men celebrated with hoisted champagne bottles because they had just completed the Transcontinental Railroad. They're on the exact spot where railroad laborers from the East, who are largely Irish immigrants, met their counterpart laborers from the West, largely Chinese immigrants. To commemorate the completion of the railroad, they hammered a symbolic golden spike into the ground. So this photo shows the two main engineers of the project shaking hands at the site of the golden spike with two giant locomotives facing each other and a crowd of railway workers swarmed around the trains in obvious jubilation. What is not in the photo, however, is a single Chinese face, not one. The 15,000 or so Chinese workers were given the most dangerous jobs in the project, dealing with explosives and rough mountain terrain. They were paid less than their white counterparts and were harshly treated by their bosses who accused them of bringing in diseases and taking jobs from white Americans. Did they not know their place? These Chinese immigrants were a critical part of the building 
of the Transcontinental Railroad, and yet they are literally not in the picture. Even at the centennial celebration in 1969, Secretary of Transportation John Volpe said in his speech, who else but Americans could chisel through miles of solid granite? Who else but Americans could have laid 10 miles of track in 12 hours? What does it take to be seen? What does it take to be included in the story? I have to say that tragically, even in the church, we can get warped messages about who belongs in the story of God and who does not. Who's included in God's family photo and who, you know, is conveniently left out of the picture because of race or gender or status or fill in the blank. Maybe we think God's story is a story only for and about the powerful, and everyone else needs to know their place and step aside. Or that it's a story where all the really important people are men, making women not really consequential at all. Friends, how we hear the story of God matters because either it's a story of the radically inclusive love of God, as we say around here, or it is not. It matters because we need to know if this is a story we belong in with the particulars of our humanity or not. Is this a story that truly includes us or is it only for the insiders, the spiritual elite, God's A-team. For the longest time, I think I read scripture that way, as if somehow I needed to find the secret to God's inside track, as if I was on this perpetual search to be worthy of God's love and attention as if simply offering to God my ordinary life with my shaky faith and uneven attempts at faithfulness was just not enough. As if the particulars of being female and Asian somehow disqualified me from a full place in God's story. And I don't think this issue is unique to me Perhaps we sit here today with our own sense of invisibility. We wonder, is this story of God only for the heroes, the movers and shakers of the world, or is this a story for me? I think whether we're aware of this or not, we all come here on a Sunday morning, wanting to hear if we truly belong in this story of God's radically inclusive love, and wondering if maybe under the surface, are we in this picture? I really love this text in Exodus. I feel honored to tell this story today of some remarkable women 
who, um, as my sister Patty made a comment on this text, said, these women who are extraordinary in their ordinariness, they aren't called to dismantle an oppressive regime or to take on Pharaoh in this overt way, but they do their part, however hidden, and become woven into God's story. I love the freedom of these women to move about in the story as if it belongs to them. They aren't stuck as if Pharaoh held all the cards, but rather they defy him. These women have agency. They have courage. They are resourceful and think on their feet. They all choose to preserve life, and that small action, which is not so small, becomes their vocation. None of these women had a burning bush moment. You'll get that next week. <laughs> that would have been nice to have a burning bush moment, right? I always wanted one of those. <laughs> None of them, as far as it's recorded, heard God's call to them from heaven saying, I have an assignment for you. God doesn't ever speak in this text. But they respond in the moment, and God's calling finds them. They act with the confidence that life is precious and worth saving. They're not stuck. They make plans. They find allies in each other. They take the one step that's in front of them to take without knowing how it's all going to work out in the end. Last Sunday, Pastor Jenna said in her sermon on the Joseph story, if you follow what brings life, you will grow. And that's just what these women do. They grow. Here's Shipra and Pua, two Hebrew midwives who seem to grow right before our eyes. Pharaoh shrinks in stature because of his fear, but they grow. Their work is what we might la label modest work. It's to attend to a woman's labor, waiting and watching for the signs of emerging life, which is what women have been doing from the beginning of time. Midwifery is all about being present. I watch the nurses during my daughter's labor do just that. The doctor popped in at the end, but the nurses were right there for the whole 10 hours of labor. Monitoring mom and baby's progress, filling us in on what was concerning to them about um, the baby's heart rate, telling us what they were doing about it and giving us anxious family members the assurance that the baby was going to be just fine. The nurses did all the little things too, like getting the ice chips or wiping my daughter's brow, telling dad to settle down and breathe. And then when it was time for our granddaughter to be born, the nurses were right there with leadership and skill and calm and encouragement, everything they needed to receive this precious new life. 
It's modest in one way, but it's in this modest work that Shipra and Pua find their place in the middle of God's liberation story. And they become liberated themselves. Remember, these are perilous times. Pharaoh is dangerous because he is so fearful. He's going to make everyone pay because he is so fearful. But Shipra and Pua follow what brings life and they grow. Shipra and Pua go in their confidence. They grow in courage. They fear God and not Pharaoh, and that is enough to get them to defy Pharaoh's edict and allow these baby boys to live. These women don't shake in Pharaoh's presence, even when Pharaoh calls them back for a second meeting. After he notices, hey, the, 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 the baby boy population is not declining one bit, what's going on? He really wants to clamp down on them. He is Pharaoh, do they not know their place? You all laughed at the right time during the text. It was great. The women say something to the effect of, um, we can't help it. Hebrew stock isn't weak and wimpy like Egyptian stock. I love it. What chutzpah. <laughs> what are the midwives doing at this moment? I don't think they just want to tweak the royal nose, although that was probably really satisfying. <laughs> I think these women are bearing witness to the God of life, to God's will for life, that Genesis vision of life. You noticed in this text as it was read how that word multiplied kept popping up. Um, the Hebrews are multiplying and Pharaoh's afraid. He makes an edict, but they still multiply. Everywhere they're multiplying. That is God's will for life. God is a God of a very good creation, a creation teeming with life and diversity and fruitfulness and flourishing. God is a God who creates life by starting a family, making a promise to a barren old couple by showing them a sky full of stars. God is the God who wills life, who nurtures life, who liberates us for the purpose of life. So how could Shipra and Pua not defy Pharaoh and choose life? And there are other women. There's Moses' sister, who we know from other Old Testament texts as Miriam. Miriam is right there at the river's edge when Pharaoh's daughter is bathing and spots the papyrus basket floating in the water. She listens from a distance as Pharaoh's daughter wonders aloud if this is one of the Hebrew children. She takes note that this woman, though she's from Egyptian royal family, is moved by this child and responding to his crying with compassion. Miriam has listened, but when it's time to act, she acts. She moves. There's no time to overthink this, no time to agonize about this decision. Miriam wades right into the water and at just the right moment asks just the right question to Pharaoh's daughter. Shall I go and get you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? 
It's a deft move, born of deep listening. There's Moses' Egyptian mom, too, a woman of privilege who had every reason not to bother with this child. He comes from the other side of the river. He is not her problem. People of privilege shouldn't have to care about what happens on the other side of the river. In fact, to take this Hebrew child would create so many problems. So what compelled her to take this child in? And does she not know that in giving him the name Moses, meaning I drew him out of the water, that this very name is already pointing ahead to the deliverance God would bring about through him as Yahweh draws a whole community of slaves through the waters of the Red Sea, bringing them to their freedom. Okay, one last woman. We don't know her name, but this woman has sat heavy with me this week in reflecting on this story. Moses' birth mom. She's the one who has to give her beautiful son up, not once but twice, in order to save him. First in a floating basket on a river, and then after she's received him back, for a little while she lets him go again, releasing him into the hands of someone who she had every reason to fear. What did it take for Moses' mother to let him go? What did she whisper in his ear as she said goodbye? And why does it seem that letting go is somehow always a part of love? There's a time to embrace and a time to relinquish, a time to take hold of the good gifts we've been given, and a time to let them go. I have been wondering about this text, and I want to just share my wonderings with you. They're just, they're kind of like questions. They're not really conclusions. I wonder what it would feel like to be this free. Free to follow what brings life. What is life in this time that we are living in, which has its own set of perilous circumstances? I wonder what it would feel like to be as free as these women, to regard our smallness as a gift we offer to God, and then to watch and wait and work towards the birthing of God's new creation. I wonder what it would feel like to have the freedom not to have to do it all, but to do what is ours to do as well as we can, trusting that others too have a role in the work of liberation. I wonder what it would feel like to be drawn into this deliverance story with a sense that as we move about in it, however modest our role, 
we too are being delivered. Let me close with a part of a sermon preached by Father Ken Untner on the occasion of a, of a mass. It was a specific mass called the Mass for Deceased Priests. There's some perspective there. This is how I, I hope it brings encouragement. It helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. Friends, I invite you to know your place. Know your place in this story. Know your place beside a God who can't help but multiply blessings a God whose overriding purpose in the world is to return it to life. May we find ourselves in the story that is setting us all free. Amen.
As we continue now with the prayer chants, you are invited in the silence of your hearts to offer your prayers of intercession and supplication, those prayers for the world, for those you love, and for yourself to be given to God. Tending the heart 
you have fed us in word, in song, in silence, and in community. And for that, we give you our thanks and our praise. Amen. People of God, you belong in the story of liberation that God is writing, and you have a role to play in the new creation that God is birthing. So live into your calling with faith and hope. And may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore. Amen. Stand.